Well, good morning. Uh, great to see you. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, there's a blue one under a chair near you, and Ephesians 4 is on page 977. So Ashley just said that it's almost Thanksgiving, but... Um, I know the fact that it's going to be 100 degrees this week might um, sort of mask this reality for us. But I, I was thinking earlier this week about, you know, Christmas is actually not that far away. And uh, Ashley and I were kind of talking and, and uh, reminiscing about, you know, Christmas memories. And often, I think, um, certainly for our family, uh, the Christmas movies are, are a part of our Christmas family tradition. And we were talking about... One of what is, in my opinion, one of the modern classics of the Christmas movie genre, which is Home Alone. And uh, you know, I'm assuming most of us have seen Home Alone, but it's the story about Kevin McAllister, who is uh, feeling like he's kind of getting shoved around and overlooked in the, uh, the hustle and bustle of his family's preparation for Christmas. And so he, um, he kind of utters this wish that his family would just go away. And he wakes up the next morning, and the house is quiet. And his realization begins to dawn. He says, I made my family go away? And then with more confidence and joy, he says, I made my family go away. And of course, all kinds of hilarity ensue, building to the epic climax when Kevin single-handedly destroys Marv and Harry. And, uh, and it's just awesome, right? And Kevin is loving being home alone, but when Christmas morning dawns and he wakes up and the house is still empty, reality begins to set in. And he realizes that he's alone and he's scared and he needs his parents and he needs his family. The isolation and the space to do whatever he wanted was uh, maybe appealing at first, but in the end he discovers that it's not actually freedom. And then his mom opens the door and kind of sneaks in behind him and says, Kevin, I'm home. And all is right in the world. <laughs> in the book of Ephesians, as we've seen over the past several weeks, Paul is coming to us and he's saying the same thing. He's saying, you're home. In Christ, you have come home. God has reconciled you to himself. He has given you a family, the church. And while many of us today prefer to kind of do our own thing, to forge our own path, to, uh, to not do something just because it's what's been done before us or because somebody else says it's what we should do, sooner or later in life, most of us realize that isolation is not the same as freedom, that our lives begin to unravel when we're all alone. Isn't it a wonder that in a time when our culture says, um, you know, the, the narrative of you've got to discover who you really are. You've got to get out in the world. You've got to forge your own path. You've got to, you know, live for yourself. That the stories that resonate the most with us are not stories of the lone ranger, but they're stories about community and belonging. Uh, whether it's Cheers or Friends or Seinfeld or even Home Alone or movies that have been stories that have been told since the 90s, perhaps, uh, as well. Um, there's stories about community and about belonging. 
And Ephesians comes to us with this good news. In Christ, you are no longer strangers, but you have become the family of God. Having been reconciled to God himself in Christ, you are no longer alienated from other people, but God has given you a family. That's what's true. But as we look at Ephesians 4, we kind of come to this point where Paul turns a corner in Ephesians. And um, we need to talk a little bit about gospel grammar here. Um, I'm going to say a phrase that's going to mean little to the non-English majors in, in our midst but I'm going to explain it. And the phrase is this. The indicative always precedes the imperative. Okay, what does that mean? It means the indicative, what is, right, what is indicated in Christianity, what is true, always comes before what is imperative, what we ought to do. And in all of Paul's letters, we see this, but especially in the book of Ephesians, the first half of the book, he says, this is what's true. God has saved you. He has reconciled you to to himself. In Christ, you are loved and adopted. You have been made an heir, and you have a family. And he's just, for three chapters, he's gone on and on about the blessing of having God as a father and having the church as our family. And then in chapter four, he pivots, and he begins to talk in the imperative. Because this is true, here's what you ought to do. Because this is true... Um, there's a certain way that you ought to live. So stand with me as I read the first uh, 16 verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Will you pray with me? God, would you give us ears to hear what you are saying by your Spirit to your church? 
would you uh, open our hearts and minds to behold things that we wouldn't have even considered on our own. Thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and who has made yourself known in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, there's two things that any good family has to do and to be. The first thing that that has to happen in any good family is it has to be a safe place to belong. And the second thing that a good family has to do is it has to be a safe place to grow up. If you lose one or the other of those two things, trouble always happens. Uh, A good family has to be a safe place to be yourself. It has to be a place where you're loved, not because of what you contribute, not because of what you bring to the table, not because of your performance or your effort or your energy, but just because you were born into the family. Okay, that has to happen in order for a family to be safe. But the second thing that has to happen is that a family has to be a safe place to grow up, to mature, to become the person that God has called you to be. Um, And if a family is going to be a safe place to grow and to grow up, it means it has to be a safe place to fail. And so a good family loves us for who we are while encouraging us to become the people that we we were meant to be. If you get rid of one or the other of those, uh, it's a recipe for maybe manipulation, maybe abuse, maybe neglect. Uh, It might take all kinds of forms. Many of them, some of them are illegal. (laughs) But that's the reality. It has to be a safe place to be who you are, but to be called into something greater than you are presently. And so it is with God's family, the church. And so Paul, having told us for three chapters in Ephesians what an enormous privilege it is to be a part of the family of God, he now says in chapter 4, I beg you to live a life that is worthy of this calling that you have been called to. And we see here that living a life worthy of our calling, it means two things. It means those two things that I just said are true of any family. It means uh, that the family has to be a safe place to belong simply because you showed up, you were born into the family. But it also has to be a safe place to grow up, a safe place to um, become the people that God has has, uh, called us to be. And so the first thing I want you to see is this, that in in three short verses, in verses four, five, and six, Paul uses the word one seven times. Um, in verse, starting in verse four, he says, there's one body one, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Okay, he uses the word one seven times. So what do you think he's trying to emphasize? He's saying that we are one. Uh, The truth is that the church of Jesus is united. The unity of the church is what he's trying to impress on us. And we need need to hear it, don't we? Because we live in a time where as much as we are obsessed with the idea of unity as a culture, um, we just don't really experience it at all, do we? Uh, Whether it's politically or racially, we have experienced just a... in some ways, I think, unprecedented heights of disunity in our country in the last couple of years. Just uh, this fall, we've seen, uh, we've just been hit over and over again, haven't we, with the news of natural disaster and often the inequity of the recovery and relief process. 
We've seen in the news over and over again scandals of the power using their influence to harm others. And I don't know how you respond to all of that, but sometimes I look at the news and I just respond with cynicism. Like, I guess that's just the way the world is. Others of us respond with outrage. Um, This must end. But I think this is true that in my lifetime, there has increasingly been a popular cry for unity in our culture. And despite the cry for unity amongst human beings, we are as disunited as we have ever been. And Ephesians 4, I think, gives us an an understanding of the reason why. Because what Ephesians 4 would lead us to believe is that unity for the sake of unity alone will never actually result in lasting unity. Does that make sense? When When the cry is just for unity, and we have nothing to gather around, Unity might be a great slogan for a campaign or for a weekend, whatever, conference or events, but it won't actually last. Um, You remember Rodney King? Can't we all just get along? Like, yeah, we all agree with that statement. Um, But it's the outworking of that statement that becomes difficult very quickly. It's like when I'm driving in the car and my kids are just going nuts in the back seat, And I just want to shout at them, can't you just all be quiet? And even as I'm saying that, I realize unless I give them something else to do, there is no way that they are ever going to be quiet. It's ridiculous because I wrote that sentence yesterday morning and said that to my kids yesterday evening, knowing it wasn't going to work. But that's what we want, right? And what the Bible is showing us is this, that unity for its own sake will never really last But real unity comes when together we are called to a common purpose. And that's what the unity of the church that Paul reminds us of is all about. Uh, It's not unity for its own sake, but rather we have unity because of what we share in common. And he, he lists these seven things. He says that there's one body. There's only one church of Jesus. Um, There are many traditions in the Christian church. There are thousands of denominations, but there is not a Presbyterian faith and a Baptist faith and a Catholic faith and an Eastern faith. There is only a Christian faith. There is only one church of Jesus. He says there's only one spirit. Uh, The church is one because every member individually of the church is the dwelling place of the one spirit. He says that we all have one hope. Now, what is the Christian hope? Um, The Christian hope is not that if we try really hard that God will bless us. The Christian hope, for thousands of years, Christians have said, the Christian hope is that one day Jesus is coming back. And uh, you scratch under the surface just a little bit, and you're going to get a wide variety of answers of what that's going to look like and how it's all going to unfold. But the one thing that the church has all agreed on is that the hope is the same, that we are hoping We are longing for the day when Jesus will return. There is one Lord who is Jesus. There is one faith. Um, This is why when we, we don't do this very often here, but when um, when we recite the Apostles' Creed together, there's the part where we say, uh, I believe in one holy Catholic church. And the word Catholic in this case has a small c because the word Catholic means universal or global. There is one Church, there's one faith. And there's one baptism. We come into the family officially through baptism, and then 
he says, there is one God and Father of all. And in saying that, you notice he, he actually um, sort of completes, rounds out the Trinity in, in reverse order from how we usually say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He says, there's one Spirit, there's one Lord Jesus, there's one God and Father of all. Seven times Paul uses the word one, and what he means is this. He's saying being connected to Jesus, it connects you. Because you're connected to Jesus, you're connected to the triune God himself. And because you are connected to God, you are connected to everything that God is doing in the world. And what that means for us practically is this, that if you are a Christian, that you will make it your business to learn how to get along with other people. Just as simple as that. If you are a Christian, it will be your business to learn how to get along with other people. Not just people who are like you, but people who are very unlike you. I've been talking about this metaphor of the family of God in the book of Ephesians. I don't know, nobody said this to me, but I wonder if anybody has, uh, I've been talking about this you know, in a positive way. Like, it's great to be in the family of God, but the reality that we all know is that often it's really hard to be in the family too, to have a family or to be in the family of God. And Paul is saying that it's our, it's our business, it's our duty, it's our privilege to work hard to learn how to get along with other people. And he's not any, under any illusion that this is going to be easy because he says in verse 3, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You see what he's saying? He doesn't say that it's our job to create the unity. He says, well, you are united. That's the indicative. Um, you, you are one. Christians are one because, not because we've like earned it, but because there's only one faith, one God, one Spirit. Um, but he does say to maintain the unity, that we have to work really hard to maintain our unity. One of the conversations that I've been having a lot lately is the conversation um, about where we're going as a church. And um, this is important, an important conversation because the reality is that disunity festers like mold and mushrooms in the absence of purpose. Um, without clear, clarity of purpose about where we are going and what we are uniting around, disunity inevitably just grows like mold in the dark. <laughs> so where are we going? Um, I've been having this conversation. You might not even be aware of this, but we have a, uh, a team of ministry leaders that meets together monthly to pray and talk and evaluate and plan and and we've been talking about this in that context, and we've been talking about this in our staff meetings with Jason and Ashley Peters and Donovan. On, so we meet on Wednesdays. Where are we going as a church? Because if we're not clear about where we're going, I mean, how are we ever going to get there together, right? We might all arrive at different places. Um, I might get to where the church is going and be all alone. <laughs> And there's a sense in which it's not ultimately up to us to answer that question, right? Because in, in, in a global sense, Jesus is the one who comes and says, you are my church, and I'm calling you to follow me, and what I'm calling you to do is to go into all the world to make disciples and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the big picture, advancing the kingdom of God. That is the mission that God has called his church to. <coughs> But as Jesus works out that big picture purpose in our little corner of his one global church, it's important that we're all pulling in the same direction. And so what we're saying is this, that we want to set people free 
from a life that is consumed by busyness or a life that is just fine by connecting people with God. And if you've been here more than twice, you've probably heard me say that. And, and I gave our staff and leaders an opportunity to say it differently. And what we concluded was nobody could come up with a better way to say it. And so my challenge is that I'm not just going to be the only one saying that. That it's not going to be just Bryce's cliche. Um, but that that's going to be something that we all begin to buy into together as a church. I've lived in Ladera Ranch for two over, a little over two years, and I've yet to meet a happy person. I meet lots of people who are fine, and a ton of people who are busy, and we wear those things like it's a badge of honor. And the reason I believe that God has put us here as a church, this church, Resurrection SC, is to say that God wants more for us than that. That this busyness is, is just slavery, and you don't have to live that way. And Jesus promises abundant life and we've got to plug into God. We've got to connect with God in order to experience that. So that's where I believe we're headed as a church. That we're going to be united as Jesus calls us, you know, um, to follow him into this common purpose. Because the church is one. The church is God's family. That's the first thing. We have to work hard to maintain the unity of the church. Uh, it's the only way for the church to remain a safe place for anybody who shows up. To have this common sense of unity, that we are united because God has called us together. The only way for the church to love and welcome all who come is to maintain the oneness that we have in Jesus. Okay, that's the first thing. But the second thing Paul makes clear in this passage is this, that the, the reality, um, that, that there is, uh, what does this say? <laughs> this is what, okay, got it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This is really where he gets into application, where he begins to talk in the imperative. Because you are one, here's what you have to do. He says the goal of all of this is maturity. You are in the family of God, not because of what you've done. You didn't earn it. You, didn't, uh, you don't deserve it. You're in the family of God because uh, of what Jesus has done for you. And now, because that's true, you have to grow up. You have got to grow up. And he says this, in several different ways in this passage. Uh, verse 13, he talks about what happens until we all attain maturity. In verse 14, he says, so that we may no longer be children. Verse 15, he says, we are to now, uh, we are to grow up in every way. In verse 16, he says, when everything is working as it should, it makes the body grow. Do you get the sense over and over again why this metaphor of family is so just clearly woven throughout this book that that's what a family is all about. It's a safe place for immature people to grow up, right? And so it is with the church. And having spent three chapters telling us of the blessing that it is to be a member of God's family by God's grace alone, Paul is now concerned that we don't remain spiritual infants, but that we grow into maturity. And um, he defines maturity. I'm not going to talk much about this, but in verse 15, he defines maturity by, uh, as speaking the truth in love. And, I mean, I think this is so crucial because some of us are truth people. And, like, we want to tell it like it is, right? And yet we do it in a way that alienates people. And others of us are love people. And we all watch, we just want everybody to be happy and to get along. And because of that, we're reluctant to say what needs to be said. 
And what Paul is saying is that when you grow up and when you become mature in your faith, you have the ability to say what needs to be said in a way that doesn't drive people away. Um, Speaking the truth in love, the ability to say what needs to be said in a way that doesn't alienate those who hear. That's what maturity looks like. But what he spends most of the time, and what I want to talk about, is how do we actually attain that maturity? And if you back up a few verses, he says in verses 7 through 9, that Jesus, having ascended into heaven as this triumphant king, having, having fought the battle and won the victory, he ascends to heaven to sit on his throne. And doing that, he, it says he gives gifts to the church. And uh, there are several places that the New Testament talks about the gifts that Jesus gives to the church. And what's clear is that um, every Christian has been given at least one gift. And that he gives those gifts to his church or to individual Christians, not so that you can like bask in the awesomeness of the new thing that he's given you. But that it's given to you as a, uh, in order to serve in the church. And so in different places, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians and in the book of Romans, he talks about a variety of gifts. But interestingly, in Ephesians, here in Ephesians 4, he highlights only a certain kind of gift. And he talks about gifts that broadly um, can be categorized as gifts, as gifts of leadership. And uh, before I, I read again what, it's, what he says there, let me just be clear that Paul is not saying that he has given the gift of leadership to certain people so that they can like, enjoy being like, in charge. <laughs> what he says is that the gift that he gives to the church is leaders. Does that make sense? And so verse 11, he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, And most translations say the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all collectively attain the unity, the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus has given leaders as a gift to the church in order to equip everybody to do the work of ministry. Um, apostles and prophets were used by God in the time of the, the, you know, the writing of the Bible and the establishing of the church to ensure that the church uh, was established and flourished and, and survived and grew. And um, we don't have pos- apostles and prophets anymore. Evangelists are used by God as, as sort of, I heard one pr- uh, pastor say that evangelists kind of fulfill the role of a spiritual midwife. And evangelists are people who God has given the unique ability to help birth people into God's family, into the church, into the kingdom of God. And so evangelists are people who do that. And then um, pastors, or the word typically, most translations say shepherd teacher. Um, If you notice, it just has the word the, the definite article, um, shepherd, uh, the, the, the shepherd teachers. It sounds like what Paul is saying is that shepherd teachers is one role, one sort of leader that God has given to the church, which we normally call a pastor. And pastors, if, if evangelists are like spiritual midwives, pastors are like spiritual pediatricians. And it's the job of pastors to, to ensure that Christians grow up, that they're getting the nutrients that they need, that they're getting the care that they need. And so what that means is that, very practically, my job 
is to help nurture the church. My job is to teach and to preach. My job is to manage and to lead. But why? It's so that we all do the work of ministry. God has given pastors to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And who are the saints? It's all of us, right? And I didn't notice, I didn't say it's all of you. I mean, I'm a saint too. It's my job. I'm not saying you do the work while I just tell you what to do. <laughs> We're all doing the work together, but you know, we, have, we each have a role in that. Um, Paul says that Jesus gave these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I um, occasionally, uh, not that frequently, honestly, but every once in a while I'll run into somebody for, like, that I went to high school with. Or like on Facebook, I get a friend request from somebody that, hasn't, that I haven't known since I was like 16 years old. And when they see my Facebook thing, and the, you know, the question is, are you a minister now? And I always hate that word minister. And part of the reason I think, I mean, there's more than this, but part of the reason here is, is, be, is because of what Paul says here. I'm not actually a minister. Who are the ministers? Like, we are all the ministers together. Like, if we were to still print bulletins that we don't print anymore, and it was to list the positions, it would say the pastors and the staff, and then the ministers of the church of Res- at Resurrection of Sea would have like 100 names there, right? Um, it's all of us together. A couple weeks ago, Jason and I went to this uh, ministry conference, and um, I went to this breakout session, and the, the guy who was teaching it said, he said, I tell my staff all the time, I'll fire you if I catch you doing actual ministry. <coughs> And I was sharing that with our staff this week. And, you know, that's hyperbole, right? But what he's saying is it's the job of the pastors and the staff to equip everybody to do the work of ministry. And um, so we've, as a staff, this last week, as we've been um, having this conversation, as we've been seeking clarity about where we're going, and this idea of that, not just Bryce's phrase, but that as a church, we are committed to helping people move beyond busy and fine by connecting with God. We've been having the, the, the follow-up question is, well, okay, well, how do we get 100 people moving in that direction? Uh, how do we all do that together? How do we create a culture where we're seeing people set free from busy and fine because they're connecting with God? And what we're, we're talking about is as a staff, we've got to do a better job of equipping all of the saints to do that work together. That God gives um, every Christian at least one spiritual gift. And he doesn't give it to us to hoard. He gives it to us to use it to serve in his body, in our family. And he gives the gift of leaders to his church, not so that there are a few people who will do all the work and it's really clear whose fault it is when nothing gets done. <laughs> but he gives the, the gift of leaders to the church to equip everybody to pick up the whatever and do the work of ministry. To help teach, he gives leaders to help teach and care for and equip all of us to serve together. And I have to say that I think in some ways that this might be the biggest challenge that we have faced as a church in our short like year and a half of history. Um, is how are we going to, as like the staff and leaders of our church, begin to lead in a way that actually nurtures and cares for and equips everybody to carry out the work of ministry. As I reflect back on the um, year and a half, two years we've had together, 
if, you know, if we run it through the prism of this passage, I think that we have enjoyed a great deal of unity together as a church. And I've been talking this fall about the sense that I think God is calling us into sort of chapter two as a church. And I think chapter two, what that looks like is beginning to actually grow up together. To be a family that really cares for one another. To be a family that has a common mission that really knows um, what we're all about and where we're going and begins to move in that direction together. And part of the burden that lies on my shoulders is this. um, As a pastor, as your pastor, can I grow up? (laughs) And can I grow up in a way that I am better able to care for you and to teach and to lead and to equip so that we can all together grow up? The question is this. Can we grow up as a family together? Because I believe that that's what God is calling Resurrection FC to um, there, are, there are community groups to lead. There are, I mean, as some of you well know, we've got to set up and tear down this place every single Sunday. <laughs> there are children to be taught. There are neighbors to be loved into the kingdom of God. There is mercy and compassion ministry to do to serve those who will never show up at our church. Uh, and more and more. And part of the work of equipping also doesn't mean just getting the church program stuff done, part of equipping you means equipping you to carry out the vocation that God has called you to in your, you know, other six days a week, to put it truthfully, right? Um, Part of equipping is equipping parents to raise Christian kids. Uh, Part of the work of equipping is equipping you to go out as business leaders to serve your employees, um, to equip you to go into situations and conversations with your clients where you're going in to these conversations, not just simply trying to make money, but to care for, uh, to build good things, to do good work. And I love hearing the stories of Jesus leading you to doing that kind of work. Let me just say this. um, If you're sitting here this morning and you're getting nervous and part of you is going, Okay, but like I'm literally doing as much as I can. Let me just like put you at ease that like this is not a sales pitch and we're not trying to get you to do more. Those of you that are nervous about, oh my gosh, I can't give any more. Let me just be clear that part of what we think this looks like is doing a better job in the nurturing and care and teaching process so that the service that, that I mean, some work has to get done, right? But that can be done in a way that looks more like discipleship than just a burden of having to wake up early on a Sunday morning. And honestly, like I don't want to put her on the spot by saying this, but part of the reason that we hired Ashley Peters to work on our staff is to help us develop our volunteer ministry as a, as a service to you to better equip you to do the work of ministry. But others of us maybe are hearing this Um, And what I want to say gently to you is this, that the church is a family and the church is not a restaurant. Um, A restaurant is a place that we go to be served, to fill up, and to leave. And um, what is the most mature that a patron of a restaurant can ever become? Uh, I think maturity for a patron of a restaurant would look like becoming a critic. 
And a restaurant critic, if he likes the restaurant, might praise, and he might write, you know, or she might write just effusive praise about how beautiful and wonderful the restaurant is. But the one thing that the critic is never going to do is walk into the kitchen and start serving food, right? And so some of us, I think the call is to get off of the restaurant of Christianity and come into the family of God. If you're in a place in your life where you're saying, okay, um, I believe in Jesus, I guess, I, I mean, I guess, right? But it's sort of like, eh. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of vitality in your Christian faith, I would gently suggest to you that you will enjoy renewed life in Jesus as you begin to serve in the family of God. Because, you know, the reality is this, that being a kid was great, and um, being a kid meant you didn't really have to worry about anything. I had a friend who put uh, something on Facebook a few months ago that said, my favorite memory from childhood is not paying bills. Like, it was great to have no responsibility and everything ultimately is done for you. And yet, I don't know any adult who would say that they would prefer to go back to that, right? I mean, it's harder to be an, I mean, you know, there's like moments, right? But like, do you really want to go back to middle school again? Nobody wants to go back to that place, right? Being an adult is harder, and yet it's better than being unsure, isn't it? And all I can offer, in a sense, is my own experience here. Um, ministry has not been easy, and yet I thank God every day that he's called me to serve him in the way that he has. And part of what that means is that there are weeks when the only reason I study the Bible is because I have to stand up here every week and say something about it. I mean, that's not the only reason, but sometimes it is. And in that process, God brings me face to face with himself. And it's in the serving that we actually know him more fully. So what about you? Are you ready to leave the restaurant of Christianity and take your place in the family of God? What's your role in the family? Because the truth is that our world is dying for unity and for purpose. And the church is God's ancient solution to both of those needs. You're not in the family of God because you've earned it, because you've worked really hard, because you're extra special. You're in the family of God because you have been born again by God's Spirit. It's a gift. It's a privilege it's because of Jesus. Because on the cross, he settled uh, the animosity that existed between you and God. He brought peace. He paid for your sin. You're in the family of God because of what Jesus has done for you. And now he wants you to grow up. He wants you to live a life of purpose. And so I want to invite you into the adventure of leaving the restaurant of Christianity and taking your place in the family of God. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the enormous privilege that you have bestowed upon us. That, um, as we've seen over and over again in the book of Ephesians, you have called us your own. You have called us into your presence. We can come 
into the presence of a God who is holy without fear because of Jesus. And you haven't simply called us as individuals, but you've given us a place to belong. You've given us to each other as a family. And God, we thank you for that privilege and that blessing. And now as the Apostle Paul encourages us to do, would you help us to grow up and to begin to live uh, lives of purpose as we serve those in and outside of your family? Because that's what maturity looks like. God, would you help me as the pastor of this church to more faithfully nurture and care for and teach and preach your word? Would you do that in us so that we might all grow up together and find the unity and the purpose that you were calling us to? In Jesus' name, amen.